Hello, this is Marcello Rolando, The Reasonable Voice. A couple of newsworthy updates before The Reasonable Voice broadcast today. The 2016 elections have taught us all votes are important, and it's always important to vote. For example, there is a special election in Virginia on Tuesday, January 10th, to elect a replacement for former state senator Tom Garrett. Voting Virginians could change the balance of power in the Virginia Senate, especially if voting for Democrat Ryan Washington. Independent Joe Hines is also a candidate. On a national level, there is a vote on Senator Bernie Sanders' amendment to the U.S. Senate Budget Resolution. Please contact your senators and tell them how vital it is to protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid from any budget cuts. Currently, there are 23 Democratic senators who are co-sponsors of this bill. However, Virginia's senators, Tim Kaine and Mark Warner, are not. The vote on Senator Sanders' Amendment 19 is scheduled for Tuesday, January 10th at 2.30 p.m. Now join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Why are police photographing our license plates? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show and happy 2017. My guest today is Lynn Rainville, Ph.D. and author, digital humanist, historian, and anthropologist. Lynn, how are you this afternoon? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for letting me help kick off the new year with you. Oh, I, I can't think of a better guest to tell you the truth, because no matter what one thinks of what's going to happen in 2017, I, my guest today can trace a lot of it back to World War One. I first interviewed Dr. Lynn Rainville, I guess about a year ago. She had written, uh, gee, now it's going out of my head, but it's uh, it was about secret cemeteries, uh, hidden history. What, remind me. Yes. Oh. Yes, a book about African-American cemeteries called Hidden History, ah. and it focused on African-American cemeteries here in Central Virginia and the rich teachings that we can learn from those gravestones. Yes. In in our last conversation, that is our conversation a year ago, we did discover that we both had visited some of the same places, including, uh, should you care to comment on it, Lynn, including, I, I reminded you, I was out on Route 29 somewhere when I uh, had first bought a home in Charlottesville, and it was uh, much further south, I think. Um, but I went off to a, a, a place that was near a school and down a back road, and there was a quarry and all of that. Anyway, I ended up at a home actually right on 29 that had long since been deserted, um, and there was a tombstone in the side yard, and you yeah, knew exactly... That, that is, Go ahead. <laughs> and I, I still do. My memory, <laughs> thank heavens, is uh, still with me here, and yes, that house is roughly uh, across from um, the Good Shepherd Church, ah, uh-huh. um, 
it's a little further down, but it's it's typical of 18th and 19th century homesteads here in Virginia, where very often, especially in rural areas, family members buried their dead in the backyard. And Mm. that particular headstone is visible if you're driving very carefully as you turn to watch for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I should say it was visible for a long time. Uh, in one of our storms, a tree came down and just about knocked it over, so it's a little harder to see now, and the house is in worse and worse shape each year. Mm. But those are exactly the types of hidden histories or stories of individual Virginians that I try to recollect uh, through my research into old cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Well, I I brought it up because I, as part of my introduction of you to our audience today, and I so enjoyed that previous interview, and so I got in touch with her again this year, and since then you've written World War One memorials, but today we're going to talk about uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia's role in the Great War, the war that was supposed to have ended all wars, uh, as it was touted by uh, then-President uh, Woodrow Wilson, who, by the way, I believe lived at some point in Virginia. Um, he was born in Stanton, Virginia. He left when he was a baby, basically, but he was born here in Virginia. Uh-huh. So, the Great War, 1917-1918, for us in the U.S., how did that even happen? I remember someone reporting once that the John Kennedy was asked how did World War One start and he quoted someone who said, Ah, if we only knew. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, the the quickest way to explain it is with the expression the domino effect because you have to remember that Europe a hundred years ago was really a series of much smaller nation states. Mm. And those nation states were related through a complex web of marriages. Mm. If you just calculate who the descendants of Queen Victoria were, you basically bring in all the major players. At this point, it's mostly her grandchildren. Mm -hmm. If you imagine this as one big family feud, which to some extent Mm. some of the origins were, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least family members not coming to the table to use diplomacy, for as long as it would take, and instead turning to military solutions, Mm -hmm. you have these various nations, especially Russia, Austria, Hungary, Germany, Britain, and then to some extent France. You have leaders, statesmen, and royalty from these various countries promising to come to each other's aid um, in the event of something, some sort of military threat. And so you go from the assassination of the heir, the Austro-Hungarian throne, Mm -hmm. Uh, Archduke Ferdinand, and his assassination is able to trigger all of these alliances and deep-seated insecurities among these various royal and political families. Mm. So it it seems almost incomprehensible that between his assassination over the space of just two months in the summer of 1914, there are enough triggers so that by the end of the summer, you have almost a dozen nations, nation states, smaller countries allying on either side, either with the Allies mm. or the, what becomes the central powers. So certainly in 1914, since uh, the United States was not part of that, we were indirectly part of that mm-hmm. political situation, but we, we did not have a royal house that was directly impacted, nor were our leaders directly related to any of these individuals. Mm. So we remained, along with many nations, but mm-hmm. we remained neutral and did so until uh, 1917 and April 6th when Congress uh, agreed with President Wilson that we would enter into the war as an associated power on the side of the Allies. Mm. An associated power. That's... Yes, we were not technically part of the Allies because in part um, Wilson... Uh, And then later, the general of the armies, Pershing, wanted to retain some autonomy over our own forces and fight as American units, not just be integrated as basically fodder, human Mm -hmm. fodder, into the French and British forces. And that's back when they rode horses. General Pershing, I have a quick short story from my childhood. Not that I was alive during World War One, but uh, uh, I, I have an uncle, a memory of an uncle taking me to a museum. 
and this particular uncle is not the type to take people to museums, so I find it curious, but anyway, who knows. But I, he told me about, he showed me a statue, uh, enormous statue, of, and he said it was uh, General Pershing, and on his shoulder were six stars because he was the general of all of the armies, unlike, say, Eisenhower, who had five stars, who was general of the army. And many decades, well, not many, but several decades later, I happened to be working for uh, the aerospace military segment of the aerospace research. And one of my jobs um, was to carry the, you know, the the handcuffed uh, briefcase, none of which I ever knew what was inside, but uh, to back and forth to the Pentagon, always accompanied by an armed uh, Marine, I believe. But in any case... Um, the I asked finally my bosses, who are all full colonels and one general, if um, it was there really a general of the uh, a, a, gen, a six star general did it exist? And and they all said no. And then when I described this story to them, they said, oh, that's probably a um, an artist's interpretation because Pershing was the general of the armies, given that title later. Can you tell us a little about that? That is later. What does later mean Correct. to you? Yes. He, after the end of the war, he was awarded four stars, and he and that is when he became the general of the armies in the fall of 1919. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think the confusion here is that they, they did propose, but this was during World War II, they yes. proposed a six-star rank. Of course, Pershing was you know, long dead, yes. um, but at that point um, was, a, had, was considered historically as the senior general. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably part of the confusion. But um, most importantly, Pershing, as the general of the armies, the goal was for, for himself and President Wilson and Congress um, that America could d- determine her own course, military course, during mm-hmm. the war. And in part, because, of course, since we were entering in 1917 and at that point, you had years of basically stalemate and then just horrendous human carnage between the Allies and the Central Powers, which had really not did not seem to be contributing to anyone's victory anytime soon, except mm. through just general attrition and starvation. It was a very important strategy to maintain the autonomy of the American expeditionary forces, which is what Pershing was in charge of. You know, I, I love, every time I talk to you, I have some, uh, a childhood memory or I went out driving around and took a picture at St. Elizabeth's Cemetery, Hidden Cemetery, and you always know how to make sense out of that. You know the historical accuracy. I just love talking to you. So I'm going to let you talk more. <laughs> how about getting us back to the Commonwealth of Virginia? I know you've written a new book. And uh, it, it, uh, it tells us about how the Commonwealth of Virginia contributed or was involved in World War I, which I, I guess we all know about the Treaty of Versailles, and, and a lot of fingers point to that being the reason Hitler and World War II happened. But indeed, one can connect the dots, it seems to me, to the uh, assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand, too. But anyway, back to Virginia. Wherever you wish to start, tell us what did Virginia contribute uh, and why to World War I? So one of the reasons that Virginia stood out for me as a major contributor to World War One in terms of the American effort mm-hmm. is because of the diverse, uh, our diverse and the different resources that we brought to bear. So if we just go kind of east to west, um, if you start in the eastern uh, edge of Virginia, you have access, obviously, across the Atlantic Mm -hmm. to the theater of battle. And in Virginia, the Hampton Roads area had one of the deepest ports along the eastern seaboard. Mm -hmm. And during World War I, there were two major ports of embarkation and one was New York City, and the other was Newport News. Mm. So strategically, Virginia was in a very important location. We shipped hundreds of thousands of soldiers from Virginian training camps and then soldiers who were being transported via railroads from other states to Newport News. 
um, we had a very large shipbuilding and ship repair company that had been founded in the late 19th century and then received a large number of governmental contracts during mm-hmm. World War One. And it really is important to emphasize that the, the dry dock capabilities of in Newport News mm-hmm. were just as important to repair ships as they were to build ships because there were no ships. Uh, even with the federal contracts, no ships were begun and finished during the war. So there wasn't enough time between the declaration of war in April of 1917 to finish a dreadnought mm. before you know the war ends. Mm-hmm. But Newport News did play a very important role in docking ships and, again, transporting men, supplies, and then horses. So if we start moving ourselves from east to west through the state, we had an elaborate system of railroad, and while, of course, many states did by the early 20th century, our railroads connected to the western, the coal fields of western Virginia, which mm-hmm. are very important for fueling ships. Mm-hmm. It also took us through horse country ah. in the western part of, of Virginia, in the Shenandoah. Of course. And one of the other somewhat unique contributions of Virginia is that we bred, raised, and trained horses to serve abroad to the tune of about 400,000. Wow. wow. And those horses, again, shipped out of, shipped from various remount depots, and the largest of which was in Front, Front Royal. Mm. And then they were shipped across, in the, I mean, tra- sorry, traveled in railroad cars to Newport News, and then were shipped across the Atlantic. And that contribution, the contribution of horses, in addition to several other resources that we provided to the Allies, we were doing this starting in 1915, so several years before America entered the war. Mm-hmm. And one British officer was quoted in 1916, or right around 1916, as saying that he estimated 70% of his mount were American horses, wow. and the majority of American horses that were being sent over were coming from Virginia. Wow. So, not to be flippant about it, but it's being in the right place at the right time, I guess. We were we were perfectly situated. Wow. Well, it's also uh, yeah um, a, a large um, long term heritage of Virginia mm. in equestrian matters. Yes. Um, so it wasn't you couldn't you couldn't have just picked any eastern state and started breeding raising horses. We had farmers in the Shenandoah Valley who had horse farms and had been raising horses for generations, and they were contributing some of their mounts. And in turn, at the remount station, they were um, using award-winning racehorses, um, for example, the Kentucky Derby, and um, using those horses after they were retired from racing as part of their breeding program. So it was a very scientific approach to trying to breed just the right horse who could, frankly, almost unbelievably remain calm or remain working while artillery was exploding in all directions and under really horrendous conditions. Wow. That's, you know, it's amazing. I I never quite understand when people don't seem to appreciate history, but I must confess when I was uh, in junior high, I didn't want to read history books either. But there's so much more to history than uh, is in our schoolrooms and texts. Anyway, I'll probably get letters for that. But... (laughs) But when when people such as yourself, real historians, write these things and connect the dots for us, we really we get a sense of. Well, another thing that offends me is when people refer boots on the ground as though they're not humans involved. Uh, they're they're humans helping on the home front. They're humans cooking donuts for Pete's sake and doing. During World War One, and of course, there are Virginians, humans, um, raising horses, having been done so, and now shifting that uh, peacetime love of horses into a, a satisfying a wartime necessity. I guess uh, is that does that oversimplify, or what? What do you think? Well, I think uh, going back to your original comment about uh, people who didn't enjoy history in school, I, I think sometimes. That's because in a school setting, the emphasis is more on the date. Yes. You know, yes. And, a, and a long list of names that are not connected with people's backstories. Mm. Um, so it, it's one thing if if someone just had to memorize 
But for example, picking up on something else you just said, uh, donuts. So if, if you just had to memorize when donuts were invented or mm. created, that would not be all that interesting. But if you had the backstory and you realized that women, uh, American women, for the most part, volunteering abroad and um, cooking and providing refreshments for soldiers, mm-hmm. they are credited with, um, if not the very first invention, certainly popularizing these, you know, circular treats for American soldiers. Mm-hmm. And these Red Cross women, they earned the nickname uh, Donut Dollies. Ah. And although there is a tremendous amount of debate over the origins of the term doughboy, which mm. was a term that especially some of the European forces gave to American soldiers, mm-hmm. one of the possible reasons for that nickname is the connection with these sugar-laden flour treats that um, were being uh, cooked for American soldiers and that were of great appeal to pretty much any soldier of any nationality who was fortunate enough to eat one. Yeah. So, you know, you put the donuts in this broader context, and then it's just more interesting and, frankly, easy to remember that donuts, again, if, they, if the very first donut wasn't during World War One, certainly that was when donuts uh, became, most popular. became part of the national right, consciousness. Yes. All right. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Lynn Rainville, digital humanist, historian, anthropologist, author, And when we come back, we're going to talk about the AEF and what is or was the nickname for Lynchburg, Virginia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Modern filmmakers have a whole wealth of tools at their disposal to make great art on the cheap, including the glorious one-stop app shop known as the iPhone. For proof that even the lowest of budgets can lead to amazing stories, look no further than Sean Baker's feature debut, Tangerine, one of the most inventive films of the digital era. Set in a seedy stretch of Hollywood, the film follows transgender prostitute Cindy Rella on her first day out of prison. When Cindy finds out from her best friend that her boyfriend cheated on her while she was in jail, she goes on a quest across the city to find the other woman and get some street justice. This shaggy dog story is funny, action-packed, heartbreaking, and even a little hopeful in a trashy way. Cindy is a hellion with a mouth that'd make a sailor blush, but she's also a scorned woman, and her complex portrayal by trans performer Kitana Kiki Rodriguez is one for the history books. Cindy and other denizens of the block she and her fellow sex workers roam are fully fleshed out in all their grimy glory by Baker and crew, who shot the film entirely on iPhones, adding to the film's gritty feel. Surprising in every way. Tangerine, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Stay connected to the Indie Film Minute by liking us on Facebook and following us on Twitter at Indie Film Minute, where you'll discover a whole world of film recommendations, movie news, and more. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today is Dr. Lynn Rainville, PhD, digital humanist, historian, anthropologist. We sometimes on the show have conversations as interesting between or during the commercial break as we do on air. But I mentioned um, the last time I spoke with Dr. Rainville, she planted that seed that I, you needed to know more about World War One. I. I know a lot about World War Two, but World War One had not been uh, something that I knew a great deal about. In any case, they, it seemed to keep popping up all of a sudden, and I was seeing... Uh, horrific uh, documentaries, and I mentioned that to uh, Dr. Rainville when we were off air, and she started to give some examples. We we know about the mustard gas, but maybe we don't know as much as we think we know, and of course, the tank and the Industrial Revolution, and uh, well, you, you take it from there, Lynn. Well, I was, I was just pointing out that um, while all wars are deadly, destructive, um, and come at great loss of human life and suffering. World War One has this special place where it's the intersection uh, between advances in technology 
and uh, global catastrophe and sending millions of mostly men to their deaths on the battlefield. And so, for example, the tanks, the automobile, of course, was relatively new when World War I broke out. It was not long before someone proposed some form of an armored automobile, mm-hmm. um, which became you know, the version of a tank. And uh, But tanks, for example, uh, usually the most dangerous thing about a tank wasn't for the opposing forces, but for the men in the tank, mm. because they were very often death traps. They got stuck in the mud. Um, mm. They flipped over. There were fires. So they gradually became more proficient militarily. But even something like the tank was as much, uh, you know, a curse for the for the side, you know, the Using. for each side themselves mm-hmm. as it was for the enemy. And then you had the invention of mustard gas, which came out of decades of experimentation um, before the war in bacteriology and kind of the, the new field of bacteriology. And unfortunately, World War One, it was put toward the end, the ends of uh, destroying men's lungs, mm. um, which perhaps almost as bad was. Um, it wasn't just that the gas destroyed your lungs. It, it did not usually kill. It was usually possible to avoid death, immediate death mm. from a gas attack. Mm-hmm. And so, but from a very crass military perspective, that was even more advantageous because now that means that you have suffering and dying soldiers that you need to attend to and care for, or yes. that hopefully you're going to try to attend to and care for. So that's going to take up even more of your resources and taking it away from your, obviously, offense. Wow. And you were just reminding me of something else. Oh, and of course, fundamentally in all this, with men experiencing battles and military devastation on such a scale that they had never experienced before, not only individual soldiers, but even the uh, experienced leaders. Um, If you think of the carnage that was occurring and what today we would call PTSD, Mm. unfortunately in World War I, they didn't fully understand the mental impact, even for someone who on the outside was uninjured and looked fine. Um, During World War I, they developed the term, a definition for what they called shell shock. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and here in Virginia, um, when you read about men being treated for shell shock, um, at first when I came across some of these medical pamphlets and, and was reading about doctors treating these men, I was actually somewhat reassured that that they were taking into consideration the, the mental anguish of these individuals. But if you read further, unfortunately, their version of shell shock is not a scientific understanding. They define shell shock as men who had weak vasomotors. I mean, they used all this, you know, kind of vague mm. pre-medical terminology. And basically it meant that when someone came back psychologically devastated from what they had experienced or seen, doctors really didn't know how to handle it, and they put it into this category of weakness, um, and very often these men were institutionalized without understanding you know, how to ever help them get better, and mm. certainly several, many Virginians uh, committed suicide in the years and decades after World War One because they never fully recovered. And unfortunately, that, that didn't end with... Uh... World War One. We've we've had we had decades of uh, of people misunderstanding the effects of war and of poisons and uh, other mental illnesses. Okay, we're, we're going to lighten up just a bit for uh, if we can. Um, tell us about. We were talking about, of course, Virginia. At least that's where we started, and that's where we'll keep returning as our base for today's show. But what did Lynchburg, Virginia, become known as as a as a kind of nickname? And tell us why that story is uh, a lot more heartwarming. So when I started studying Virginia's unique role, as I mentioned a little while ago, one of the things that strikes you is the extent of our railroad. Mm. And Lynchburg, Virginia, then as now, lay on a main railroad track and. During World War I, uh, this meant that a lot of troops were being carried in railroads, often from other states, 
to come to one of the dozen-plus training camps here in Virginia. Mm. And so these men were traveling often for days mm. uh, in railroad cars to get to their training camp. And Lynchburg was a destination where these trains would stop um, to refuel or to bring on water. And um, the women in Lynchburg, Virginia, basically organized themselves and turned it into uh, kind of a a railside canteen station where they Mm. would meet the train and provide refreshments to the soldiers. And for quite some time, this was an all-volunteer effort and that meant because it wasn't an official organization, they didn't even have mili- they did not have military clearance, which meant they did not have access to the train schedule. So they had to oh um, keep watch as to when these trains would arrive and pass through, because of course it was they were trying to keep it somewhat of a, a secret for sure. security reasons. And then they would provide sandwiches and coffee, and then this very quickly developed from just providing refreshments to special requests or if a commander would telegram ahead and one time uh, he asked for a bath for his men Mm. and so uh, citizens volunteered with their cars to meet the train and take men back to their homes to bathe and from all this the nickname that Lynchburg inherited was Lunchburg Mm. Wow Um, Tremendous pit stop for I mean, all that volunteerism and, uh, I mean, there must have been train after train after train, thousands of men uh, being moved. Is is that correct? Well, yes. During the war, Lynchburg often had uh, eight trains passing through a day, and many of those trains contained uh, men. Some of them contained supplies. I should mention here that for people who are interested in Lynchburg or Lynchburg uh, World War One history. The Lynchburg Museum are opening up a new exhibit on World War One in their community, and wow. that would be at the their downtown location. So I highly recommend that. And tell us, I don't know if we've mentioned yet uh, the title of your new book. Uh, the new book uh, is titled "Virginia's Surprising Role in the Great War," and it should be due out within a year from University of Tennessee Press. Okay, very good. Good. I wanted to say that. We'll touch base on, on, on websites and all that before we go. But tell us about the American Expeditionary Forces. I know the AEF, again, we know so much. I, well, I speak for myself about all the terms that come out of World War II, but World War I still is a mystery. And as I implied earlier, I think the entire war, as much as the Treaty of Versailles, really uh, is responsible for a lot that still goes on in the mindset and how different points of view uh, are developed over war and peace. But I leave that to you, Len. What do you say? Well, so the AEF, or the American Expeditionary Forces, this was the name for the United States Armed Forces that were sent to Europe and commanded by General John J. Pershing, as Mm -hmm. we already mentioned. And again, the advantage here, and I mean the strategic advantage, was um, to send the American forces as already a a fighting force, not just send American troops to help with the effort. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it was quite clear that if we had just sent troops and supplies, and we had already been sending supplies, but if we had just sent troops over in 1917, that they would have been, they would not have retained their regiments and units from their training in America. They Mm -hmm. just would have been. Uh, again, thrown in really as fodder, uh, especially with French and British, into French and British units. Um, so the AEF was Wilson and Pershing and other uh, military leaders' efforts to control and develop their own strategy. And I have to say, uh, my research actually began when I was over in France at an American cemetery, and when I was talking with British scholars and uh, even French scholars, their impression was that, and historically speaking, the impression was that the Americans could not possibly ready themselves. They could not go from, mm. you know, a neutral nation without a fully functional, professionally trained army in the time required. And that was why they were arguing that we should disturb under these well-established mm. other European units. Mm-hmm. So it was really quite a testament to the AEF that it geared up so quickly trained so many men, some of whom, at least 
well, certainly here in Virginia and in other states, not all men were training with live ammunition or real rifles. Oh, yes. We, right. we weren't able to equip all the trainees, but only a certain fraction of trainees actually made it to, you know, across the ocean and into the uh, theater of battle. Mm-hmm. Not everyone in the training camps was training with real guns. Wow. I think I've, I've seen that, uh, broom, broom sticks and, and wood carvings and mm-hmm. such things. Wow. Anything that you could hold in your and, hand that would and, roughly <laughs> be the rough equivalent of a rifle. Oh, boy. Uh, Well, for those that did make it into the war across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, traveling much like the horses did, I imagine, but when they, what happened uh, to those who were killed? Where, where, we know about the American military uh, cemeteries after World War II, and of course, Arlington Cemetery um, after the Civil War, but where were the American military dead buried after World War I? As with pretty much um, any war, um, certainly in the past, the Americans who fell during battles abroad were initially buried in mass graves, not as a sign of disrespect, but as a sign of exigency Mm. during the fighting. A a handful of very well-known individuals or high-ranking individuals were given separate burials, like President Roosevelt's son, Quentin uh, Roosevelt, who was shot down. He was a pilot, and he was shot down, and he was initially given uh, a separate tomb um, that people were visiting and paying their respects at. Mm. But most soldiers were being buried for exhumation after the war and the decision then as to where they would be buried. And in America, we ended up creating the American Battle Monument Commission. Mm. And And, for example, in Britain, it was the Commonwealth. Commonwealth Graves Commission. Mm-hmm. So here in America, the ABMC was created um, to try to handle how and where to bury American servicemen. Mm-hmm. And the decision was made after a lot of debate. The decision was made to give American families an option. Their sons, and in some cases their daughters, mm-hmm. um, would either be buried abroad in newly created multi-million dollar brand new American cemeteries or the government would pay to ship their bodies home, and there they had several options, either Arlington National Cemetery, if they had obviously had served in the military, mm-hmm. or at state-level national cemeteries, and we have several here in Virginia, or they could bring them home for burial and bury them in a community graveyard or a family graveyard. Mm. And, and that decision to allow Americans the choice ended up costing the federal government tens of millions of dollars mm. um, as they both designed the cemeteries abroad and paid to exhume the bodies from battlefields and bring them into these concentrated um, sections. And then, of course, to bring bodies back home. And here in Virginia, some of the first bodies were brought back in the spring of 1919, so several months after um, Armistice Day. And how, uh, well, how did we, I guess by that time, the, the uh, obviously the de- uh, rigor mortis and decay had set in, but um, so the remains were... Put... Ah, well, this is at a very important part of the story. Okay. Yeah. As with, again, any any burial where um, you're digging up the body afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, In this case, the exhumations, I should clarify, went on for years and years. Um, So in some cases, this was long past rigor mortis. Um, But in the majority of cases, there were labor battalions that were sent to dig up the bodies and then bring them to these centralized locations for these new cemeteries. And those labor battalions were predominantly African-American units. Mm. So this was part of the segregated policies of the uh, American Army during World War I that segregated most units into black and white soldiers. And then very often African-American soldiers were not given the same opportunities to fight on the battlefield, but rather were relegated to uh, labor battalions or sanitary units. And one of the very grim tasks 
these soldiers had after the war was to exhume bodies. Wow. Oh, my heavens. Well, we are, we are inspired and, and uh, by all of your information and, and uh, history, your knowledge it, uh, that you've shared with us today, Len, Dr. Len Rainville, uh, let's again remind people, of, of not everyone can get to Lynchburg, Virginia's museum, but, but uh, where can they find out more about you? Again, give us the title of the book, how we can uh, find it when, I know it's not out yet, but um, how, how do we learn more? I guess that's what, how do we learn more? Tell us. There are two main ways to learn more about World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a World War One and World War Two commission here in Virginia. It's a combined commission. So if you want to learn more about America's role in World War One, you should definitely visit the United States World War One Centennial Commission website, which is World War the Number One Centennial dot org, okay. and that's all one word: the World War One Centennial. And then. Here in Virginia, we have a World War One and World War Two commission. The two were combined to honor the 75th anniversary of World War Two, mm. along with the centennial of World War One. And that website is www.virginiaworldwari.org. And for my book, um, I have a website that documents World War One memorials in Virginia, and that can be found by visiting just www.linrainville.org and that is where I will be posting more information about my book, Virginia's Surprising Role in World War One, which will be due out within a year from University of Tennessee Press. Good, and just spell the way we will uh, your, your name the way you spell it for us, for the website. It, it is www.linrainville L-Y-N-N-R-A-I-N D-I-L-L-E dot org. Very good. Well, thank you, Dr. Lynn Rainville, for being on the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. It is always, uh, I, I just, you know, I mean, I love history, but the way you know history and the way you can can answer questions and inform us in a way that anyone can understand uh, is just a, a beautiful gift, and, and we greatly appreciate all that you do. And thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for your kind words. All the best to you, and uh, uh, we'll talk to you in another year. How's that? Absolutely. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, Lynn. Bye now. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. And now, another film rental discovery. Hey, film lovers, the highly rated Indies at Vinegar Hill film series is back this month with the heartwarming Jordanian movie Captain Abu Rayyad from director Amin Matalka. Join us on January 26th at 7 p.m. for a special screening, followed by a lively Q&A with the director. Advanced tickets are now on sale at IndieFilmMinute.com. And don't forget, sign up for our email newsletter so you can stay up to date on future screenings. And now... Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Saigon must have been a beautiful place in 1951. It remains so in the memories of director An Dung Tran, who recreated it in a French studio for his film, The Scent of Green Papaya. This is a film of visceral beauty, a lush work of art that will excite all the senses. It takes little extra imagination to smell, to taste, and to feel the world of Mui, a servant girl who, as a young teen, comes into a family of uncertain fortune. This film doesn't require much plot to be a worthwhile journey. So magnificent is the simple beauty it has to offer. Mui finds her way into the center of a family to which she is indentured, and years later finds her way to love in the world. More importantly, the film's artful message is clear. The world around us has so much to offer, we are foolish to allow distractions, small or large, to divert us from the appreciation of our blessings. The Scent of Green Papaya is a film to be enjoyed on a quiet evening, in a comfortable chair with the lights down low, in the mood to be satisfied by the simple pleasure of sumptuous beauty. 
Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. From Russia with love, Donald Trump. It's a new year, new administration, maybe even a new dusk before the darkness, but anarchy in 2017 inauguration would be a bloody, self-destructive pendulum swing-and-a-miss reaction to the demagoguery of a reality faker saluted at mob-ruled political rallies, and most of the people, some of the time, are much better than such chaos in the street. So be reasonable, remembering no matter the obstacle, there's always the option to peacefully assemble, then see how they constitutionally run. When, at the helm of our ship of state, we position financially craven opportunists, blood-sucking hero-worshippers blinded by the glitter of a fool's gold, right arms in salute to touch his craven image, we, the humanitarian nation of hope, recognizing our mistake in judgmental judgment, reject with the clarity of reasonable review, fact-checking, and human decency. However, we abuse hope if our only faith is in waiting for those who trumped their voting privilege, or pathetically, too apathetic to vote at all, suddenly experience an epiphany in time to unwrite our mindset, stop settling for settlements avoiding court gesture appearances, admit the human truth in melting glaciers, and eject he who satisfies cravings by groping 140 characters. Infringing on the freedom of the press, we see how they run a country like bankrupt businesses. Our revolution will reverse right-wing direction of cokehead deregulation, sexual prejudice against LGBTQ community, dehumanizing the disabled, celebration of racists, secession from stewardship of a clean, livable environment, and the rise again of white supremacy. Emancipate also our social and informational foundation by insisting our news media cease and desist wallowing in redundancy, thinking news is telling us what they think we should be thinking. That's not investigative reporting, but gossip a la roundtable. We need more Jack Joe Friday web, just the facts, ma'am, and less tabloid competition. When our thinking is left to us, we see how they run with deception. We can rely on our 45th president to increasingly be his own worst enemy, but our resistance can't wait for the 115th Congress to admit enough is enough. Indivisible is produce of First Amendment, confirming, because all politics is local, the one thing an elected official craves more than Wall Street handouts and K Street acceptance is our vote for their re-election. So invade city councils, county and school boards, state legislatures, governor's mansions, offices of House of Representatives, and the U.S. Senate, and in peaceful ensemble, dissolve Trump's superficial infrastructure. Only the taken-for-granted expect Trump to listen. But the wise will engage in massive displays of paying close attention to every word he says, and all he fails. In the last dozen days of the Obama administration, the best thanksgiving with which to honor our Constitution is to peacefully defend its guarantees to all Americans, and to listen to the encore ensemble of the new President-elect's plea to moveon.org, before discovering something is rotting in the state of conservative extremists. Thanks to Edward Snowden, we know global spy masters at NSA give the president immense spying powers, which means, as of January 20th, 2017, Donald Trump will have the power to spy on all his political opponents. It will be like Watergate on steroids, combed over. Nonetheless, if not love immediately, Letters to editors, calls to members of Congress, emails to state legislatures, sit-ins at nearest government office buildings, petitioning courts at every level to stay the presidential election until further investigation of conflicts of interest for nominees, probable criminal mob activity of potential POTUS, 
possible treasonous anti-American attack on the sovereignty of the United States of America in conjunction with a foreign power. As descendants, recipients, and veterans of Peacefully Assemble, we honor America by shining the light of truth on the puppets of ignorance, arrogance, and cowardice, and then see how the trumped run for cover from each other. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Hello, this is Marcello Rolando, The Reasonable Voice. A couple of newsworthy updates before The Reasonable Voice broadcast today. The 2016 elections have taught us all votes are important, and it's always important to vote. For example, there is a special election in Virginia on Tuesday, January 10th, to elect a replacement for former state senator Tom Garrett. Voting Virginians could change the balance of power in the Virginia Senate, especially if voting for Democrat Ryan Washington. Independent Joe Hines is also a candidate. On a national level, there is a vote on Senator Bernie Sanders' amendment to the U.S. Senate Budget Resolution. Please contact your senators and tell them how vital it is to protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid from any budget cuts. Currently, there are 23 Democratic senators who are co-sponsors of this bill. However, Virginia's senators, Tim Kaine and Mark Warner, are not. The vote on Senator Sanders' Amendment 19 is scheduled for Tuesday, January 10th at 2.30 p.m. Now join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.